0: Our scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 20. As you are turning in your Bibles to that, if you're using the Black Bible, it's on page 1045. When I was a a worship director and assistant pastor, I remember every November, my pastor... Uh, dreading the next month. And, and I always thought, well, that's kind of strange. It seems like pastors of all people should be like, you know, it's the happiest season of all, after all. Doesn't that, isn't that what the song says? Um, until I became a senior pastor and preaching every year. And then every year... November would come. And you have to start thinking well, how do I say this again? How do I put it in a new and fresh way? How do I preach that old, old story in a way that moves our hearts to be amazed that God became man? in order to die for our sins. You would think that that's an easy thing. Like you would think that's not a story we would ever grow tired of, but it becomes a, you know, it's a, it's a self-inflicted burden probably, as one pastor pointed out. You, could, you can actually, as long as you just change your illustrations, you can preach the same sermon every Sunday and no one will notice. So there's the possibility that we could just do the same Advent series every year. But um, it seemed appropriate to just stay in Luke this year, stay in the passages where we are, because in one sense, I mean, it would have been very cool, certainly, if today lined up with Luke 21, where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, that would have been nice. It would have been probably even cooler if the four Sundays of Advent lined up with four Sundays about the crucifixion and resurrection, that would be, uh, that would have been amazing, so... You don't get to be amazed with me this season because we're going to be in the temple and Jesus is going to be teaching hard things. And then even talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the coming, the return of the Son of Man and uh, some very strange passages that we'll be looking at. Uh, But through those passages, we will be looking and asking, so how does this, how does this bring the hope of Advent? Like how does this bring us, how does this speak of the peace that only Christ can achieve? How do we see the joy that is available to us beyond our circumstances in these passages? And so uh, today's passage is just a a place where Jesus is being bombarded with questions, not by sincere questions. Uh, followers or sincere seekers, but by skeptics and folks who simply want to trap him with his own words. And then Jesus will turn the table on them and ask his own question of them. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word, remembering that we are just days from the crucifixion, days from Jesus's arrest. And so here we are in Luke 20, verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for her brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second, and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection." But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. But they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So before we get into the questions, we just we want to set up the stage here for what's going on. Last week, we read the parable about the landowner who owned a vineyard, and he leased out the vineyard. He let others use the vineyard, but when he sent folks to get his due from the harvest, uh, they beat up every servant that he sent until finally he sent his beloved son, thinking, well, surely they will respect my son, but instead they think, well if we kill the sun then the vineyard will be ours and so they kill the sun and he says what will this landowner do but take the land from them and destroy them and give the vineyard to others and so even while we might sit and wonder well is that is he talking about just the priests and the scribes and the leaders of Israel or is he telling this parable about all of Israel Is this about the move from from Jewish to Gentile uh, in the the New Covenant? Even while we wonder about that, the teachers, the scribes, the, the Pharisees, none of them wondered at all what Jesus meant by the parable. They knew exactly that he was speaking of them, and it ticked them off, and so they would have loved to have seized him at that very moment and destroyed him, but they were afraid of the people. And so they come up with this plan. Let's just use his own words against him. He doesn't mince words. He certainly didn't mince words with that parable. Let's get him to say something that will at least either uh, turn the people against him for what he says or incite the Romans to do something about it. And so, so they come, they watch him, we're told. They send spies who pretended to be sincere. Literally, the word comes from the same word for hypocrisy. And the, the, the danger of hypocrisy isn't always that it's untrue. Uh, the danger of hypocrisy is that it is insincere, that it's false in how it presents itself. We are false when we are hypocritical, not necessarily with what we say, but with how and why we say it. I mean, look at how they address Jesus. Everything they say is technically true. They say to him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly. You show no partiality. You truly teach the way of God. All of these things are true, but they're not saying them in actual praise. They're saying them in order to trap Jesus and what they ask next. And so they have these, this political trap. They, this, they want to uh, bring up this conundrum, this trouble, this question, is it, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? On the one hand, the question, they pose it in such a way to make it sound like maybe this is a, a first commandment issue. Because Caesar fashioned himself as a god. And so to give tribute to Caesar was, in one sense, to worship Caesar. And is it right for us to worship Caesar in this way? Should we pay tribute to this man who calls himself a god? If Jesus says yes, then he'll be perceived as supporting Roman and the Roman occupation of, of Israel. If he says no, well that's grounds for arrest, grounds for even the accusation accusation of sedition. To make it a simpler, maybe a little bit more applicable to us, it's not just, are you worshiping Caesar? It's really a question of, is it right to pay taxes to a wicked government? Is it right for us to pay taxes to the to this wicked, occupying government who doesn't do according to God's law, who doesn't act and install or instill or bring laws about that would bring glory to God and protection of the weak? They're questions that probably we wrestle with occasionally. Jesus knows what they are about. He asks for a denarius. Uh, a Roman denarius was a one coin. It was worth about a day's wages. And there was this this annual poll tax that was one denarius, which as I read that, I was like, one day's wage. <laughs> I would, I'd, I'd be good. I'd be like, Man, imagine the, the tax rate of that. One day. The other 364 are yours. That'd be nice. But there were other taxes as well, as we've seen. But this was a particular tax with a Roman denarius. He says, who's... Whose likeness is on it? Whose inscription is on it? The Roman denarius had the bust of Tiberius Caesar. And the inscription said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, Augustus. And so Jesus says to them, well, render back, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Literally, he says, pay back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. It's interesting that, I don't know if they realize it, but they had already lost the argument when they could produce a denarius. Like, they had already lost the argument of whether to pay Caesar Taxes or tribute when they had Caesar's own money in their pockets. They were certainly willing to use Caesar's money and his goods. I'm sure they all traveled on Roman roads, not the verses of salvation, but literal Roman roads. You know, it's sort of the question of. Do I really need to pay taxes on my water? It's like, well, how did your water get to your house? Well, through the pipes that the city put in. Well, yeah, probably then it would be appropriate to pay the city for the pipes and for the roads that they maintain and for the traffic lights that keep people from plowing you down when you cross 610. It'd be good to help pay for those things. And we usually just focus that far on what Jesus says. Paying taxes is appropriate, even as a Christian. You ought to pay taxes, even as a Christian in a non-Christian or post-Christian land. However you want to put it, it is appropriate to pay taxes. If you're benefiting from your government, then paying tribute is an appropriate thing for you to do as a Christian remember in college, uh, I was in business school, and in business school, most folks who are in business school have a relatively conservative view of pol- politics and such, and of the government's involvement, and I remember our professor one time asked, do you think the government should be involved in welfare? Should the government... Uh, be involved in, in welfare cases and, and such. And so many of the people, they, were, they thought, oh, this is a great opportunity to show you how smart I am. And so folks would say, like, no, no, they should definitely not be involved in welfare. And that's, that's something that others should take care of. And, and then the professor asked, so how many of you are using student loans to get through school? Oh. Oh, the government shouldn't be involved in welfare for them. I mean, welfare for me is good because like, I, I can't pay for college by myself. But see how we, we're very quick to say, like, well, you shouldn't be involved in that. And then, oh, well, wait, wait, what would that eliminate for me? And so, but we usually stop there. But Jesus goes beyond the question with his answer because he literally says, pay back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But he goes on and challenges the people, and you and me, and he says, and pay back to God the things that are God's. And so the first question is, well, what exactly is God's? Well, Psalm 50 says that every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. My pastor used to add to that, And also, God's not a tenant farmer. The the hills are his as well, not just the cattle. I know the birds, everything that moves in the field is mine. In John 1, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What belongs to God? God. Everything, everything belongs to God. What do I owe to God? Your, your skills and abilities, your talents, your home, your family, your possessions. All of this belongs to God. The, the parable before said we are tenant farmers at best. We owe to God everything. Everything. Even yourself. Jesus asks the question, whose likeness is on the denarius? It could be interpreted whose image is on the denarius? Whose likeness is on you? Whose image do you bear? Give back to God the things that are God's. And so people are stumped. They don't know what to do with that. And so the Sadducees come in. And they think, well, you just didn't ask the right questions. You didn't get him. So maybe he's smarter politically than that. What we need is a theological conundrum, like something that, you know, like, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Or can, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it. Uh, You know, so they're trying to ask some sort of theological question to trap Jesus. We've probably all been in classrooms where there are students who ask questions not because they want to know the answer, but because they want the professor to know how smart they are. Now, if you've never been in a classroom like that take heed. You might be that person, if you've never noticed that person, because every classroom has that person who wants to ask questions just so the professor sees how smart they are for thinking about that. In seminary, even, uh, I was in a class and a student asked a question. And it was a deep question. It was a long question. It was a well-thought-out question. And the professor paused for a moment. and He said, You know, a little while ago, I thought about thinking about that and decided it wasn't worth it. And then he went on with his lecture. I was like, oop. The Sadducees and the Pharisees are sort of two sides of a political group that that kind of run Israel. A lot of differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The the Pharisees believed in divine sovereignty, whereas the Sadducees believed believed entirely and only in man's free will. Pharisees believed in angels and demons, both of which Sadducees denied existed. The Pharisees affirmed uh, an understanding of Scripture that included uh, all of what we would call now the Old Testament, the Torah, The writings or the poetries and the the prophets, whereas the Sadducees only accepted the Torah, the law, the first five books of the Bible. And then finally, what Luke says is really the most important thing for you to know about the Sadducees, Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. And the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And we've done this before, but in case you missed it the last time, this is how you remember them, kids. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, and that is why they're so sad, you see. And then there's the Pharisees, and it's just, I don't know, it's fair as I see it. Be good, for goodness sake. Um, But the Sadducees, they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so they come up with this, this theological hurdle. Like if, if the resurrection is true and they go straight to the law, they go to Torah, they go to this obscure uh, law about when, when a man marries a woman and if he dies before they're able to have children, uh, you know, then there's no heir to pass on the land to. And so if he has a brother, the brother is to marry the wife marry the woman, really in order to care for and provide for her. He's to make sure that she's not destitute, she's not alone, she's not left out begging for money and support, but he supports her, he provides for her, he takes her into his household and provides a child that will be the heir of his dead brother. It's a, it's a beautiful thing when you think about it, like it's intended to make sure that she is cared for. And so they turn it into this This theoretical problem. So there were seven brothers. It sounds like the beginning of a musical. There were seven brothers, but only one bride. And the brother has a bride, but he dies. And he leaves no heir. And then the second brother. And the third. And on down the line. And then literally it says, And at last she died. Which, in one commentary, they said, also, proof that this is a fictional story. Because no woman would live through seven husbands. She would have given up long ago. Which is probably true. But they say, so, riddle me this, Jesus. Whose whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? And so again, Jesus both shoots down their question, but then goes beyond the question. So first he says, first of all, you are thinking of the resurrection in wrong terms. You think that life after death is just life before death 2.0. Like, you're assuming that life that goes on today is how we should understand life that goes on forever. He says, that's just, you're, like, you're not, like, your mind is not expanded enough. Like, you don't, you're not seeing large enough. Like, life everlasting, resurrected life is, is more than. Like, it's not just other than or a continuation of, it's more than. He says, he says look... The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. One of the reasons for marriage, not the only reason, but a reason, is that we don't die off. That life continues. That we, that we populate the earth. That we, we are fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's one of the reasons for marriage. He says, you're not going to die. There is no dying off. There's no propagating. You don't need to repopulate. It's full. That's not going to be an issue anymore in the resurrection. Those who are considered worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they're equal to angels. They're sons of God, sons of the resurrection. I know... You want me to answer that question. I know that this passage causes some to rejoice in the afterlife and some to be a little disappointed in the afterlife. Because it sounds like he's saying you won't be married anymore. I don't know the answer. I don't know. There are things I know that the Bible portrays about everlasting life. I know that the Bible shows that we are always moving forward, never backwards. So like, for example, resurrection life will be robed will be clothed. But Garden of Eden perfection was naked. So see, that's what I mean by moves forward. It doesn't go back to redo something that already was and now we move on. Like, there will be perfection in the resurrection, but it won't be naked, unashamed perfection. It will be clothed, unashamed perfection. Things move forward. Things always Expand, they don't decrease. So, deep relationships will grow deeper, not more distant. Like, consider your deepest relationships and now subtract sin. Like, how gloriously, like, that's a deeper relationship available to you. The love that you feel for others will grow. It won't diminish. Knowledge will be more intimate, not less intimate. God says we will know even as we are known. Sometimes it could be that asking whether there will be things like marriage or more specifically certain levels of intimacy in heaven, that's that's almost asking the wrong questions. It's, It's asking, it's sort of like if you were to have a conversation with your child about, oh, I don't know, the birds and the bees. And you're trying to explain to the child that it's wonderful, it's glorious, It's the best thing ever. And your child, trying to connect to what you say, says, is it like chocolate? And you're like, what? No. Is it like chocolate? No. It's so much better than chocolate. In fact, it's so good, you won't even be thinking about chocolate. And then your child thinks, well, I don't know if I ever want to do something that makes me forget about chocolate. Like, asking these questions about heaven is like that. It's like, well, is there this? And it's like, what? No, you're, you're, that's too small. And I know, listen, some of you are going to come tell me and say, there can be chocolate. You can use chocolate. Do whatever you want. But I'm just saying, I'm just saying it's better. It's It's more glorious. The relationships that you have on earth will be more, they won't be less. But then Jesus moves well beyond that question because he knows that that question is even coming from a place of, like, we don't even believe in the resurrection. And so Jesus says, listen, by the way, let's get to that part first. And he goes straight to the Torah with them. He's, he allows that they only allow the Torah as God's word. And he says, all right, well, let's look at the Torah. Let's go to Moses in the burning bush. And by the way, if you ever wonder whether Jesus thinks Moses wrote the Torah, the words are God's words, and he says, Moses said. So at least Jesus thinks Moses wrote the Torah. Because he says, didn't you read where Moses says I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Jesus says, listen, He's not the God of the dead. He's saying 400 years later present tense, I am right now the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not saying I was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and now I'll be your God, Moses, and pretty soon I'll be David's God. He says, no, right now I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We were just in Sunday school looking at Genesis 17 where God says, I will establish my covenant between me and your offspring after you through their generations as an everlasting covenant. I will establish a covenant between me and you as an everlasting covenant. This covenant, this relationship between me and you will go beyond your death. When an everlasting God... Makes an everlasting commitment to you. that commitment is going to last everlastingly. Not even your death will stop God's commitment to you. And some of the scribes are are blown away by Jesus' wisdom. And so they're stumped, and no one has any more questions for Jesus, and he says, "Well, okay. Let me ask you a question then, as long as we're asking each each other questions. Jesus takes them to Psalm 110. And there was never doubt that the Messiah was going to come from David's line. That was understood from, from 2 Samuel chapter 7, when Nathan is sent to David and God says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. There was never a misunderstanding in Israel at the time that the Messiah would come from David's line. And Jesus says, So then, how is it that David says to this offspring of his, or about this offspring, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for you. Jesus isn't saying that the Messiah won't be from David's line. He's saying there's more. Who is the Messiah? Who is this one who will come? And according to David, it is someone higher and greater than even David himself. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, the seat of royalty, the seat of honor, until I make your enemies a footstool. So, where does Advent hope come in this passage then? Well, you can know with certainty that if you belong to Christ, you belong to Christ body and soul in life and in death. As Paul says concerning the resurrection, he says, if, if your hope in Jesus is just for this life, that is a pitiful hope. If it's just a, we pretend the resurrection is real so that we can have happier <laughs> lives, he says we're pitiful. you bear the image of God you are if you are in Christ you you belong to God twice you belong to God first because he created you you bear his image and you belong to Christ to God because he purchased you with the blood of Jesus render to God give back to God what belongs to God death is not The end. There's life in the everlasting Son of God. Chapter 20 is full of just Christological truths about who Jesus is and therefore hope for us. It begins by questioning the very authority he has. Jesus has the authority to preach the gospel, to call out sin, to forgive sinners, to raise the dead. And that authority comes from the fact that he is the beloved son of God sent by God to reclaim what belongs to God. He is the Messiah. He is David's son and David's Lord. He sits at God's right hand right now. And one day all of God's enemies will be nothing but a footstool to Jesus. There's hope. In that, if you belong to Christ, let's pray. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Son of God, Son of David, David's Lord, our Lord. We praise you and thank you for the reality and truth of the resurrection From the dead, that was secured by your death and resurrection. God, give us a desire to give back to you what belongs to you our hearts, our lives, our possessions, our abilities. Our families, our children, our spouses, help us to trust you even when we do not understand even what the resurrection future brings, let alone what tomorrow brings. Help us to trust you and put our hope in you and wait for you. In Jesus' name, amen.